Uh, I just want to begin by saying what a joy it is to gather with you here in Houston to be a part of uh, this church gathering. EHC holds a special, a special place in my heart. Uh, most of you, or a lot of you, I, I know and I've been blessed to know uh, for a period of time. Uh, it's actually, it's really hard to believe. It's been six years since I had the privilege of being able to serve as your intern. Six years ago, uh, you guys extended to me uh, graciously the internship here, and I, I was so blessed and so changed by it in many different ways. I'm grateful for those months and that investment you guys made in me. Uh, and just thinking back about it, uh, thinking back over, over time, my, my ministry has been significantly shaped by the time I spent here, the, the months I spent here in, in Houston. Uh, and, and really, the, the, the way that Randy, Pastor Randy, just poured into and invested in me. And uh, I was impacted deeply by watching him lead you all and, and love each of you individually. Uh, it, it impacts an individual to see a pastor have the heart like Randy does. And so uh, that has inspired me in ministry. And also then to see the way that many of you have responded so faithfully to uh, the leadership of the Lord through Randy and have gone to, to love and to worship the Lord in uh, so many ways faithfully. And so uh, I just love each of you. I pray for you often, and I pray for your pastor regularly, uh, and it's a blessing to be with you all uh, to enjoy this time and this opportunity here at Eagle Heights. So thank you very much. I also want to thank you for the way in which you have loved uh, on me and my wife, but especially our son, Ben. Uh, it's been such a, a joy. We're glad to have him here for you guys to be able to meet him. Many of you sent cards, sent gifts, and uh, most importantly, encouraging words that we uh, appreciate uh, and the way that you have, have loved on him already and the way that you showered his lolly, uh, Shelly, and, and just been able to love on her and provide her with some things so whenever he's here in Houston, he can enjoy his stay. Uh, so your love for our son, your love for us means so much to us. And so kind of get that out of the way as introduction. We're glad to be here with you. Um, but also I need to say a quick word of, of apology. I'm sorry to, to the people from Summit Fellowship, my congregation who are here with me this morning, uh, a few of y'all who are gathered with us. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry because they drove over seven hours to be here for this weekend only to find out that they can't escape my preaching, right? They can't get away, and so I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, no, but it's a, it's a joy to be with you all. It's a joy to be able to open God's Word together, and um, we were happy to be able to travel here to be a part of uh, Haley and Dylan's special day yesterday, uh, but especially now to be with you guys to worship the Lord uh, this Sunday. And so with the summer months Upon us now, at this point in time, it is wedding season, isn't it? Right, not just because there was a wedding celebrated yesterday, but this is the time of year when a lot of anniversaries are celebrated, a lot of weddings take place. And uh, just by a show of hands real quick, how many of you enjoy weddings? Not very many? Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think, honestly, every married person should be raising their hand right now, right? You should enjoy weddings. It should be a, a good a good. A good thing to look back on. We, we enjoy weddings. Most people do, whether you're in it as the bride or groom, whether you're part of the wedding party, or uh, whether you're just coming to enjoy the cake and the celebration. Uh, weddings are an exciting thing. But when we think about weddings, where is all of the attention? Where is all of the focus given for that day? The bride and the groom, right? <laughs> you don't have a wedding with just a bride. You need, you need the groom there as well. So both of them, the attention is fixed on both of them, two individuals who are becoming one flesh on that day. And so a wedding really isn't a kind of day that you want to try and upstage the bride or groom, right? It's not the kind of day that you want to outdress either, either party. It's the kind of day that you want to allow for the attention to be fixed on the couple, and especially... Uh, be able to give attention and celebrating them. And so the purpose of the wedding party is very important. The wedding party plays the role in uh, honoring and pointing all of the attention to the couple. That's why there's a maid of honor and a best man. They're there to celebrate and to assist the bride and groom on their wedding day. And so that is an important role. It's an important task that is given to the wedding party. 
And it's a role that John the Baptist compares his entire life's ministry to. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to look in John chapter 3. You can follow along. The slides should be up there for you. We'll read from John chapter 3 in verses 22 through 30. And here we're introduced. uh, We see John the Baptist. We've seen him earlier, John chapter 1. Uh, we're familiar with him, but here we're able to see really his, his purpose in life, the reason that he was created, the reason that he lives, and uh, the joy in which he finds uh, through life. And so this is the passage we have, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with us across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is the word of the Lord, so let's just turn to him together again in a time of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity now that we have to turn to your word and to hear you, almighty God, speak to us. What a grace this is, God. We ask that you would help us in this time, that we would decrease and that you and all of your glory would increase in and through our lives. God, we pray what is a simple and an old prayer, that through your word, what we do not know, you would teach us, that what we do not have, you would supply us, and what we are not, you would make us. God, for the sake and the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage we have before us this morning begins with two words. The two words are after this. And John here, the author of this book, is indicating that there's a transition of focus that's taking place. So going back to chapter 2, if you were to turn and look at the events there, it was the events of the Passover, the Passover which took place in Jerusalem, where over a million Jews would gather annually for an important celebration and a feast. And so through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we're able to see an important encounter that takes place between Jesus and a man who at the point in time is not yet a, a genuine disciple of Christ, but he's on the verge. He's discovering who Jesus is. And so he goes in the secrecy of night, and this is the encounter Jesus has with the man Nicodemus, right? If you're someone who's not super familiar with God's word, likely you're familiar with John 3.16, That is a passage that's the most popular verse probably in all of God's word, John 3.16. And that is really the the climax of this encounter that Jesus has with with Nicodemus. And it then leads into Jesus and his disciples making their way out of the, the busy, crowded city of Jerusalem and back to the Judean countryside. There, Jesus and his disciples continue the ministry that they have. This ministry that they're doing is practicing baptism. Now, it's important when we think of Jesus being an overseer of baptism, it's important that we realize that Jesus was not the one physically actually baptizing individuals, but he was spiritually overseeing that work. Maybe you're thinking, why is that important? Well, could you imagine for just a moment if you were there, a part of the, of the early disciples, the early church, and you were an individual who had been baptized by Jesus Christ? Could you imagine the room for pride that that would give you, right? To be able to boast that, well, you may have been baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Jesus, right? I belong to his baptism, right? That would be room for for an opportunity for boast. And honestly, 
uh, room for some dissension within the early church. And so Jesus avoids that altogether because we're informed in chapter 4 that it was the disciples of Jesus who were doing the baptizing. Jesus didn't baptize them, but he oversaw this work. And so then at the same time we're told this is taking place, that the Apostle John informs us that John the Baptist was also continuing his work of baptism. And that is important for us to be reminded because uh, there's still crowds of people who are swarming around John the Baptist. His ministry is still taking place. His ministry began before Jesus and he came onto the scene. But at this point, the Gospel of John, Jesus' public ministry is beginning to grow. And as Christ is increasing, as his ministry is becoming more and more popular, there are a lot of people who are turning away from John the Baptist and are beginning to follow and to admire and to tune in to what Jesus has to say. So Jesus is increasing. His ministry is growing uh, to magnificent numbers. And John the Baptist is kind of beginning just to fade into the background. So that's what's taking place here. Now he's still baptizing, and that's important because John's telling us that he's not yet put in prison. right? And we look at the Bible on, on, from a perspective that we've already seen it come to a completion. Right? We have the whole of God's word, the 66 books put together. But at this point in time, as the, uh, the early audience would have been taking it in, they would have been familiar with there's a baptism that was taking place, a certain kind of unique baptism, right? We think of baptism, and we think of the, perhaps the baptism that you experienced, right? The kind of baptism that happened when the Holy Spirit came and all of the church now experiences through faith in Christ. But the baptism that's being talked about here was before that. And so it's helpful to remember that baptism took place all the way back in the Old Testament, right? Even before Jesus came, there were baptisms happening, but they were different. They were a different kind of baptism. Baptisms in the Old Testament were where a Gentile was coming to be a part of the Jewish nation. And so they wanted to be introduced into Judaism. And it was then that they were baptized, which was symbolic. It was just a symbol of them experiencing that they have been cleansed so that they can enter into relationship and fellowship with God and the nation of Israel. So they were acknowledging, we're entering into this covenant and this baptism is symbolic. But it only happened for Gentiles. It only happened for those who didn't belong to the nation of Israel by birth. But John the Baptist, when he came onto the scene, he introduced a new and a unique baptism. Something that had not happened before. He was baptizing Jews. He was baptizing those who already belonged to the nation of Israel, those who were born into Israel. And in doing this, he was revealing to them their need to repent of their sins, that is to literally turn away from their sin and to express faith in God. And so it's a new and a bold baptism. And John the Baptist is the one who starts this ministry. And so now we find that Jesus and his disciples are also doing, at the same time, a similar baptism. The same thing is happening. And so you can imagine that there could be a little bit of room for confusion for the disciples of John the Baptist. They're thinking, we started this work. John, you started this work. But now Jesus is doing the same work, right? And more people, in fact, many of your disciples are leaving, leaving us to go follow Jesus, Right, so there's some confusion happening for uh, the disciples. And at some point, uh, while both of their ministries of baptism are taking place simultaneously, there's a dispute that arises. And it's between John's disciples and a Jew. Now, we're not informed who this individual was or who these uh, disciples were exactly. We're not given any of the details of the discussion except that it was about purification, Right? Purification, that's an important word in this passage. In other words, there's an argument that's taking place over what role baptism likely plays in one being purified and cleansed from their sins. What role does baptism play in your purification from sin? So that's likely the discussion that's, that's taking place. The disciples of John are arguing with this individual Jew. And we don't know all the details, but we do know that immediately afterwards... The disciples of John run back to John and they give him this concern and complaint. They say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, that is Jesus, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, 
He is baptizing, and all are going to him. That's what the disciples say. And they reveal a little bit of worry. You can see the worry, and you can hear it from their words, right? There's rising popularity of Jesus, and at the same time, this decreasing of John the Baptist. There's less attention and focus on him and his ministry, and now more on Jesus. And you can sense the jealousy in the words. Look back at those words again, right? They say here first, they don't even refer to Jesus by name. You have to infer it in the passage. Right? They say, he who is with you across the Jordan. Right? And whenever we have bitterness in our heart toward an individual, we don't even want to name them, right? When we're jealous, we don't want to talk about the individual. I'll just, I won't say their name, and the problem's not near as bad if I just ignore them. Right? So he who is with you, right? we know his name, but we're not going to say Jesus. He who is with you across the Jordan He's baptizing now. He's doing the same thing that we're doing. But also you can see there was a sense of frustration in the fact that they exaggerate their circumstances. They say, everyone is going to Jesus. Everyone is going to him. Now that's not the reality because these disciples weren't going to Jesus. In other words, there are still people, in fact, John tells us in this passage, people were still coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. So his ministry is still happening. People are still gathering regularly to receive his teaching. But at this point in time, the disciples are concerned because they see numbers are decreasing. This is a kind of concern that a lot of pastors can have on a week-to-week basis. My goodness, there's chairs people aren't sitting in, but last week they were sitting in. Other churches have more people sitting in their chairs. What's going on? There's a shifting constantly, and it can become a focus. And that's the problem the disciples of John the Baptist we're dealing with. So there's some good in it, and the good is that they were seriously devoted to John the Baptist. They were sincerely devoted to him, but they had seriously distorted the role and the purpose for John the Baptist's ministry. And so this is the kind of thinking that they have. They say, John, your ministry is beginning to fail. (laughs) Right, we've gotta mix it up. We've gotta do something exciting, something new, because at this point, everyone is leaving us, John. We're not seeing as many people come to be baptized, and now they're going to Jesus. What are we going to do about this? John, you're losing your reputation. People are respecting that man more than you. You have worked so hard to be in the limelight. we got to do something about this. That's the concern that they have, the worry in their hearts for John the Baptist. But listen closely to the way John the Baptist responds. I want to read this passage for us again because I believe that if you take the words that John the Baptist says, if you believe them in your heart and if you apply them to your life today and every single day, then I believe you can have genuine joy and true purpose in life. The greatest joy and purpose in life comes from seeing and believing what John the Baptist is about to say. This is how he responds to his disciples. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. What a powerful answer from an individual who is fading into the background. A powerful answer from someone who had a lot of fame and worldly glory, and it's all shifting away from them. And so the main idea I want us to see from this passage this morning is this, that a disciple of Jesus finds their greatest joy in magnifying Jesus. A disciple of Jesus finds their greatest joy in magnifying Jesus. So our greatest joy, if we follow, if we believe Christ, our greatest joy comes from magnifying him. That is from making much of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Our joy increases as Jesus and his name increases. And so seeing that main point, I want us to be able to follow just the remainder of our time four specific points just insights into the response 
that John the Baptist gives. And my hope is this morning that we would be able to leave confident that we have joy because our greatest purpose in life is to magnify Jesus. I hope that that's in part our response, but I hope as well that we are able to see and to follow after the example that John the Baptist gives us. So four brief points we have. Firstly, we see that John acknowledged God's grace. John acknowledged God's grace. See, in unwavering humility, John declares that everything he has comes by the grace of God. He says, you cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. I find that interesting that that is the immediate response to the news that his ministry is beginning to tank, right? How do you respond when someone brings you the kind of news that makes you, would make you upset? Is your immediate response, yeah, but God's grace is amazing, right? He's given me so many things. No, likely your immediate response is concern and worry and frustration. You begin to think, woe is me. (laughs) Woe is me, right? Man, I worked so hard for this. So many years baptizing all those people, eating locusts out in the wilderness, like doing some strange things. This is the ministry that John led, and now everybody is leaving? What in the world? This is hard. It's hard, it's hard to handle. Right? When, our, when our life, things in our life begin to fall apart, when we experience tragedies, difficulties, when the circumstances are not as they once were, when we're not as content and pleased because things are, are going differently than we had desired them to go, our typical response is not to say, wow, God is gracious. God gives everything. There is not a single thing I have that he has not given me. That's not the normal, the natural response that we have. But this is the way that John the Baptist responds in such a beautiful and profound way. In fact, I believe that this is why it is that Jesus could say about John the Baptist that none greater has been born of woman than this man. None is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because even when he's experiencing failure in his ministry, even whenever all of his fame and glory is diminishing, even when the focus and everything he's worked hard for decreases, he maintains a focus on God's grace. You see, John the Baptist believed the words of the psalmist. The word the psalmist said, Lord, you are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. In other words, John the Baptist is completely confident that the nature of God is goodness. And therefore, as a result, everything that John has comes because of God's goodness. Everything that he deems good in his life is a result of God's grace giving to John. Even the trials that he goes through, even the suffering that he faces later on in his life, even the difficulties of losing your your ministry and fading into the background If it's given to him by God, it must be for his good. John is confident of this because he's confident in who the Lord is. And so John believed that it meant for him even if his ministry is diminishing, even if it results in everyone deserting him, God is still good. You see, it must have been for his disciples a difficult moment hearing that response because they would have likely been thinking, yeah, but you've worked so hard. God is good and he's given you these things, but you've done all the work here. You've invested the long hours. You've gone through all of this ministry. You're losing all of this popularity and the crowd is is leaving you. But John would have clarified for them, no, you don't understand. I wouldn't have a single person coming to me. I wouldn't have a single possession in my life. I wouldn't have the breath in my lungs were it not for the grace of God. And so it's essential for you and I to follow after John to see the same thing in our daily lives. It's essential that you see that this morning, that every single thing that comes from God, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from heaven, from the Father of lights who gives graciously to his children, who supplies our needs, and we're told that there is no variation or no shadow due to change. He is always good, he will always be good, and he will always give good things to his children. And everything that we have comes by his grace. And everything that we're given, as John saw, 
is meant to magnify him. So if you have anything that you deem good in life, it's given by God's grace so that you can then glorify God with that goodness. And that is what John displays for us. You see, the decisive factor for you and I and what will determine our response to the hardships of life, to the decreasing, to the losing out on perhaps uh, popularity or recognition or, or the status that we desire, uh, the, the very factor that will, help us, that will determine the way we respond is the one whose glory we're chasing. You see, if we are concerned with our own glory, then every trial we experience will result in disappointment. When suffering comes into your life, you will be disappointed because you'll realize that, well, I'm not getting the glory that I desire. But, on the other hand, like John, if your aim is set on magnifying Christ, then in all circumstances, in increase and in decrease, you will find yourself deeply satisfied in the God of all grace. And so that is the example that John sets. But secondly, John remembered and he reminded others of his role. He remembered and he reminded others of the role that he had to play. Not only does he acknowledge God's grace toward him in his life, but he also knew that there was a specific role and a purpose in his life that he was created for. The purpose of John's life had been decided for him actually before he was born, which is an amazing thing to think about, and I believe it to be true for you and I as well. That before even the foundation of the world was formed, God had you in mind, and he had a plan for your life in mind. And even when we say, yeah, but I've messed it up, right? I've made a wreck of my life. I, I, I've, I've been given God's grace and, and I've done terrible things in light of it. Right? But even in that, God has been working from before the foundations of the world to provide for us a path of redemption, of reconciliation, and then to be able to be used by him for the role that he has given us. And so what is John the Baptist's role? The prophet Isaiah told of this hundreds of years before John was born, and he said that he would be a voice who would cry out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist was this voice. He was the voice who would be brought into the world with the purpose of pointing all attention to God in the flesh, to God's glory made known through Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was created for that role, and he came, he says, not as the Christ, but to bear witness about Christ. He wasn't the center of attention, but he was the one paving the way so that all attention could be fixed on Jesus. So John the Baptist, he remembers, that's my role. That's what I was made to do. That's why I exist. But he also reminded his disciples that this was his role. Right? And you can, you can imagine they're frustrated, they're concerned because everyone is going to Jesus and they're thinking, this is the ministry you worked so long for. You're losing your popularity and naturally they would be concerned because they would be losing their popularity as well, right? They're popular by association with John the Baptist, but if he's no longer the cool thing, the one baptizing that everybody's coming to, if it's now Jesus, then they lose out on some of the glory as well. But John the Baptist reminds them, he says, I'm not the savior, I'm the servant. I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. It's not fixed on me. It's not about me. It never has been about me. And you guys don't like that. That frustrates you that I'm losing popularity, but I rejoice in that because I find my life's purpose in making much of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist is excited because the role that he has is pointing to Christ, and now everybody is going to Christ, and that's what he lives for. And that's what fills him with joy. And I encourage you this morning, you were created for a beautiful role. God has a part for you to play in his plan of redemption. And that is to make much of Jesus. To make much of him. 
right? Eric had, had prayed earlier, and he, he had shared in the prayer for our offering the need for the lost in the world to hear the hope of the gospel. Well, how will they ever hear unless there's someone who goes? And unless the person who goes takes the hope of the gospel with them. So it's essential that you and I see we have a part to play in bringing our neighbors and the nations to Christ by making much of him, by magnifying the gospel of Jesus. And so our role, we have unique lives. None of our lives look the exact same. We're different, but God makes us, all of us, with one purpose, and that is to know him and his glory and then to magnify his glory to the ends of the earth. We're made to enjoy and to share Jesus with others. And so I encourage you that when, when your popularity diminishes, when you find yourself in a situation that life is, is not going as you desire, the circumstances are not exactly what you had, would have picked for yourself, I encourage you to be reminded that you have a role to play. And it's not about making much of who you are. It's about making much of Christ, magnifying his name. And then you are to remind that role that you have. You're to remind others every time that temptation comes for you to try to make it about yourself. Remind yourself and remind others of your role. And I encourage you this because the glory of Jesus Christ is better than your name being made uh, famous, right? The fame of God is greater, far greater, and his glory is far superior than any of us could ever imagine. So I was thinking about that for us, and I just want to share with you a quote, but before I do, I want to show you a picture. I want you to guess, what is this? What is this beautiful picture? What is it? There's not much confidence out there. It's the Grand Canyon, right? It's grand. It's amazing. It's magnificent. And I, I appreciate my cousin Adam for giving this picture uh, to me so I could show it to you all. And he had a panoramic one that um, was just awesome. I was hoping there would be a way we could just make the whole room, you know, this, this beautiful picture of, of the Grand Canyon. But what, what words or perhaps what thoughts come to mind when you look at the Grand Canyon? Majestic. I heard a number of people say that, right? I, I mean, I, you almost can't even respond immediately. It just takes you to a place of awe. It's amazing. It's magnificent. And I want to share with you a quote that John Piper shares in a, a book, and you can see the book is called Taste and See. I encourage you, it's an incredible daily devotional to look into. But this is what he says about the Grand Canyon. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. That's pretty powerful. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to say, wow, I'm impressive. I'm amazing. Look at me. Look how amazing I am. No, but you're humbled. And even people who don't have a faith in, a, in, in the God who created the Grand Canyon, they're amazed and they're humbled by how much greater and more majestic and awesome the Grand Canyon is than, than even we are. It's humbling. No one goes for that purpose to build their self-esteem, but they go and he says that there's greater healing in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. And so what John Piper is so profoundly saying is the reality which John the Baptist believed and he lived. He believed and he found his life's purpose and his greatest joy not in promoting his own name, but in being humbled by the grace of God which would allow him to be used in making the name of God famous. That's awesome. We've been made for the same exact purpose. And so thirdly this morning, John rejoiced greatly in the bridegroom's voice. He rejoiced greatly in the bridegroom's voice. Why did hearing Jesus' voice mean so much to John the Baptist? Well, because it wasn't the voice of just any groom that he was hearing. It wasn't just anybody's voice that John was listening for, but it was the voice of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. 
right? You're familiar with John the Baptist. You know back in John chapter one, when he's first introduced, he comes not as the light, but the one who's bearing witness to the light. That John the Baptist's whole purpose is to point the attention and focus to Jesus. He's, he's paving the pathway so when Jesus comes onto the scene, all attention will be fixed and ready to receive him. And so that's what John the Baptist exists for. That's his life's purpose. It's to every page that his name is included. But now, even here, we're able to see of John the Baptist that he is delighting in making, making Jesus popular, making his name known, and being able to share, share others with Jesus and being able to introduce them to him. But he's saying here that he finds great joy in hearing this Jesus and listening for him. And back in John chapter 1, when he first sees Jesus, uh, at least whenever he sees him publicly, and Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, John the Baptist is standing there with his disciples. His disciples are all gathered around him. There's people coming to be baptized the Jordan River. And on the other side of the river, Jesus is walking by, and John spots him. And what does he say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, the way in which Jesus enters the scene is as a sacrificial lamb, a beautiful picture of what God is going to do for his people and for all who come to faith in him through Jesus. But that's the way that he introduces Jesus. He says, the lamb of God. And the lamb of God there is significant because it's pointing to the sacrifice Jesus would make on the cross. That it's through his selfless laying down his own life on the cross, that through his innocent blood being shed at Calvary, that he would purify the guilty from their sin. And that they would be able to receive him in faith, and having received him, they would be forgiven and brought into eternal life with God. And so John remembered his role, but at this point now, John's rejoicing because there's a far greater role to be acknowledged. And it's the role of the lamb, the role of the bridegroom. It's a far surpassing opportunity for him to see. And so notice John refers to Jesus here in verse 29, not as the lamb of God, as he did before, but now he's referring to him as the bridegroom. So here's a logical question. If you're still following along this morning with me, the logical question for us would be, would be this. What connection is there between the Lamb of God and the bridegroom, right? John the Baptist says initially, behold the Lamb of God, and now he's calling him the bridegroom. What connection is there? Well, actually, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, the vision that the apostle John has of heaven, an angel says to him, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The wife of the lamb. Now, who is the bride? It's the church, right? The universal church. All uh, believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the lamb. Those who come in faith to Jesus, they belong to the church. But who is the bridegroom? It's the lamb. It's the lamb who, with his own blood, purchased his people for himself, purchased them by giving his life, shedding his blood, and his blood buys them into this eternal relationship, redeeming them and saving them and giving them eternal life. And so it's the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. John is saying Jesus is both the lamb and the bridegroom. And it's beautiful to see that. And so we look at the picture of Jesus, and we see the sacrifice that he made, and that's why uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is able to use that same picture of Jesus and encourage husbands that you need to follow after Jesus in the way that you love your bride, right? This is what he says, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ, who is the lamb and the bridegroom, loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water which, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
That's amazing. There's some important words in there which remind us really of what this, this, this whole uh, interaction with John the Baptist and his disciples, what really even spurred that on. Do you remember the, the dispute that broke out between a Jew and uh, some of John the Baptist's disciples? Right? The dispute was over purification. So now we're going we're gonna to bring purification, that topic, back into our attention for just a moment. What does this passage, what does Jesus, the bridegroom, have to do with purification? Well, it's significant because John the Baptist is rejoicing greatly because Jesus, the glorious lamb and the bridegroom, has purchased his people and he has solved the problem of purification once and for all. The problem of purification is solved through Jesus Christ. And we say, well, what is the problem of purification? The problem is that we have all sinned. And because of our sin, we're separated from God. We're clothed. All of our, all of our, our clothing is as filthy rags, the prophet says. So we are separated from God, and as a result, God's wrath is on mankind. And we deserve God's wrath. And sometimes we think of, of the wrath of God, and we say, that's a scary thing. I don't like that. We shouldn't. It's terrifying. But it also is beautiful and glorious because it reveals to us that God is just. He is pure. He is going to take care of sin rightly. He judges perfectly. He doesn't simply sweep our sin under a rug and say, oh, no big deal whatsoever. He says, I'm just. I will take care of sin. But he's also gracious. And he says, I'm not only going to judge you for your sin, but I'm going to become flesh. I'm going to step down, and I'm going to bear my own wrath on the cross. So all of the holy hatred that God has toward our sin, it's placed on himself, on Jesus, the lamb and the bridegroom. And because God judges Jesus guilty of our sin, we can be judged innocent. We can be purified Purification comes through the death and the resurrection of the lamb and the bridegroom. So Jesus came into the world to accomplish our salvation and our sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy way of saying being made more like God, being made holy, being made righteous. And so what a savior we have, amen? What a lamb and a bridegroom who buys us from death and sin with his own blood, and then he makes us blameless for his glory forever. That's why John has great joy. That's why his focus is fixed not on himself and his own name, but on the one who has a far superior role, on Jesus, the lamb, and the bridegroom. So to wrap this up this morning, our last point, we see John declared, Christ must increase but I must decrease. Like the best man in a wedding, John's role was not about himself. It wasn't about highlighting his name. It wasn't about drawing attention to himself. And he saw his role not here as an option, and maybe I can do this, maybe, maybe not. I'll decide whenever I get in the limelight if I want to leave that. No, but he saw this as a joyful requirement, that he must decrease. That word must is important. If you write in your Bible, I'd encourage you, underline that word must. It must happen. It has to. There's not an option for him in his mind. He must decrease so that all the attention, all of the focus, all of the popularity can then be shifted onto Jesus. It must happen. And so his desire was to sit back, and most people who fade into the background don't do so with a smile. Not John the Baptist. He fades into the back. Jesus takes center stage, and John rejoices greatly. He's able to watch the lamb, the bridegroom, and he says, I must decrease because he, he's going to increase. He must increase. And that is where we see John was truly satisfied in seeing the role of Christ surpass and take his own. And so we think about that this morning. Maybe we just consider that in our own lives. Uh, the truth is that that teaching goes, this, all of today's teaching goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? 
So much of the world. The world is working every single day and billions of dollars are being invested in in trying to give you things to tell you and, and sell you the lie that you need more and you need to increase so that your joy can increase, right? The teaching of the world is that if you increase, you'll be more happy. The world tells you that. Right? That's why so many people are depressed when they look at social media and they find that there's someone else out there with more followers. There's someone else out there who's receiving more likes. There's somebody else who's out there saying things more eloquently than perhaps a lot of pastors, right? And so it, it creates in us this, this jealousy, this bitterness, this problem which pride is at the root of, and it begins to make us feel unhappy. And the only resolve in our minds or the way the world tells us the only resolve is by chasing more of that popularity, more notoriety, more glory and attention. Right? Or perhaps it's if I just simply get more material possessions, if I have more increase of the things around me, more money in my account, the nicer car, the, the newer gadget, those types of things, they'll fill that hole that I have. The increase of these things is attached to the increase of my joy. That's the... It's the message of the world. But that's not what John the Baptist is teaching us. I'm encouraging you, don't buy that lie. Don't buy the lie that you need more material things and you need your name to increase for you to have real joy. That's a lie from the devil. Right? Don't waste your life seeking short-lived secondhand satisfaction that comes from materials and man's empty praise. Don't buy it. Don't believe it but instead follow the example of John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, the greatest joy, the greatest purpose you can find in life is not from your own increase, but it's actually as you begin to decrease. The greatest joy that you can find in life is seeing Jesus in his glory and being satisfied in it and then committing your life to sharing that with others. That's the greatest joy. And so then you think about, well, God's grace certainly has given me a lot of things. And I'm not saying in any way to be ashamed of that. But those are gifts then using, you, you, given by God to you for you to then use to increase his fame, right? Every penny you have is a resource which can magnify the name of Jesus. Every dollar we spend on our, on our food budget is food we're buying so that we can eat and have energy to glorify and make much of Jesus. Every person that's placed around us that we have influence on in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces and schools, every person we encounter is an opportunity God's giving us to make much of Jesus, to show them that there is real healing, not in magnifying self, but in magnifying God. And so this morning, wrapping up all of our time together, I encourage us, we can learn from this encounter of John the Baptist and his disciples. And we can be either like John the Baptist or we can be like his disciples. There's only two ways you can respond to a message like this. Two ways. Number one, you can see Jesus and his kingdom as a threat to your own kingdom. You can see him as a threat and you can say, oh, he's come to take away my glory. He's come to take away the things that I love, the pleasures that I enjoy. He wants to take from me and not give me anything good in return. He wants to be made famous. Who is he to say that? Right? And you can have that response and be like the disciples and try to, try to point John to Jesus and say, what is wrong with that man? You can see him as a threat or you can come in humility and with great rejoicing you can see that Jesus is the source of all joy. And he is the source of our life and our life's purpose. And that to make much of Jesus, to magnify this gospel of God's grace is where we find real, lasting joy. You can respond in one of two ways. And I just close by imploring you to respond by coming in faith and humility and receiving Jesus. Turn from the lie of the world and the devil and treasure Jesus Christ above everything else. Receive him in faith. Treasure the lamb and the bridegroom because he has paved the way, the only way that we can have purification from sins. 
And by his death, he purchased our salvation and our sanctification so that we can find lasting, eternal, perfect joy in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we are so humbled. Humbled by your grace that you are good and you do good things. You give good to your children. You supply our needs every single day. What do we have that has not been given to us by you and your grace? God, would each of us in our hearts this morning begin with that reality? Would we humble ourselves? Would we come to the place where we see that all that is good is by your gracious goodness? And Father, we ask that you would Enable us, empower us by your spirit, strengthen us so that as we, as we see your goodness, we would see then that all we have is, you, is given to us so that we can use it to make much of you. God, would your name be glorified through the lives in this room? Would you use us? God, we want to point others to the Savior, to the one who came to purify us from our sins. We want to be able to resolve the dispute of purification by saying, look to the lamb, look to the bridegroom. It's all about him. He's the only one who can fill the emptiness of the world. God, and would you give us lasting joy? I pray for any of those here this morning who, who feel like they don't have that joy right now. God, that you would just, in your grace, draw them close to your side. Would you bring them into you? Would you help them right now to just let go of the desire to seek after their own glory? And would you show them your worth, show them your beauty? And may they treasure you above everything else right now. And Father, I ask that you would use this word, you would use your, through your spirit this teaching time, that it would have an immediate and a lasting effect change upon our lives. God, we don't want to leave this place this morning the same way we walked in, but we want to be filled with your presence. We want to be filled with your joy, and we want to leave living our life on purpose for your glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time, and we trust that your spirit will continue to teach us and to guide us as we respond in faith. We ask all this in Christ's name. Thank you so much. Can we just uh, give Mitch a hand? Thank you so much for sharing. I, I don't think that you'll ever be able to read John chapter 3 and this passage of Scripture again without remembering that we exist to promote the greatness of God. He must increase and we must decrease. Amen. Amen. And guys, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be able to worship with you. If you're here for the first or second time and you haven't yet received one, please swing by and grab a gift card. We've got a Starbucks gift card. And I handed those off to Miss Kim today. So Miss Kim is right over here and she'd love to hand one of those to you. Uh, and uh, you can have the coffee and you don't even have to put up with me. I mean, that's as good as it gets. So definitely catch up with Miss Kim. It's been our pleasure to have you as our guest today. If you're a, a, a graduate, I want to make sure and see you by the selfie wall out there. I want to get a picture with you guys and pray with y'all as you go your separate ways. And guys, thanks so much for being here and being a part of today's Sunday celebration. We're going to end the way we always do. Maybe some of y'all don't know it, but here is how we always do it. We've just heard God's word. Now let's go live it. God bless you guys. Y'all have a great week. Love you guys.